0: Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. For me, the stand started in 2013. I'd had a time in prayer with the Lord, and it was evident to me that he was calling me to stand in the gap for vulnerable children and then a couple of months later a guy walks through the the church doors and i'd never seen him before and i've never seen him since but he carried with him a spiritual authority that i knew i had to lean in and listen to what he had to say and he told me he sensed a lawlessness and that we needed to protect the children He told me that I needed to join hands with my husband and grab my hands like this. Join hands with your husband and pray like this for the children. And then he told me that he saw the children in a circle and around that circle there were the parents, the caregivers. And around that circle there were mighty warriors. And around that circle was the fire of the Almighty God. There was these layers, these circles of protection around the children. And I knew at that point that this was a calling. After that, there was a series of events that made it evident that God was giving me more and more opportunities to share this. And the stand really is a culmination of that. So it's time to stand, to stand for our own wholeness and the wholeness of others. It's time to stand as parents and for the other parents in our circle. It's time to stand for my marriage and to stand for your marriage, and it's time to stand for vulnerable children in our community. My name is Julia Bowles, and I'm gonna stand. Who will you stand with, and what do you stand for?
1: We're in our stand series. Um, uh, one of the things we said we want to revisit every single year is this idea of what does it look like to stand with families, to be involved in a way that we're building circles of support networks for families so that um, if they've lost loved ones or if they can no longer be in the home that they were in and what, what organizations do we partner with in order to be able to participate in providing safety and security for those who need to be surrounded. It's really what the church is designed. To do, And so we've actually recorded um, four different stories that we'll be watching over the next um, four weeks together. But today's story, I want to give you a little bit of context for it, because Connie is a really unique situation. Um, she was out of state, and you're going to hear her story in just a moment, but she lost everything when it comes to family. And she found herself in Alaska and connecting with um, Cody and Sophie Farrington, who are our Talkeetna campus pastors now. And so I want you to hear Connie's story of security, safety, and family being built around her. Turn your attention to the screen, please. I'm actually a chaplain.
2: Um, I came from Florida as a chaplain, wanting to serve, at, uh, serve in Alaska. Um, things that were in my life, came to uh, a stop, I became a widow when I was 33 years old. When you're a widow, there's a reproach. The women don't want you around their husbands because their husbands might want to help you. If you're too sad, they might want to comfort you. I said, I'm just existing and I don't like it. I don't want to just exist. I want to really trust God and do something that I'm afraid to do I think he dropped Alaska in my heart it's just timing and so now when the time comes it's are you gonna be in your way or are you gonna are you gonna trust God and I'm scared you know and I said those are those are excuses they're lies and they just go so I just started searching I don't know anybody here. I found ABI and. ABI stands for? Alaska Bible Institute. So Cody's a dean of students. And some of them are like, nah, she's old. She's gonna be painted in the butt. And Cody's like, yeah, I see something here. She's a chaplain. I really think we should give her a chance. I showed up at ABI get on campus. I go early so I can get acclimated before the school year because you got to go to school to live there. They send me to Cody's house for his wife to help me with some things. Sophie, Sophia. They send me to Sophie's house and I walk in the door and I go yeah. They sent me here. I don't take this wrong but i you need some help i'm like do you mind if i climb mount Dishmore? and i'll wash dishes we'll talk so i'll come over i'll give you a couple of hours every other day and i will if i just can do the dishes i'll be happy because i know it'll help you so cody comes home a couple weeks later he loves me because i helped his wife Cody was on his way to He His time was up. He'd been there six years. Time to do this. He felt the Lord calling him to pastor. So he said, Connie, he recruited me. I am so spoiled. I'm honorary grandma. I'm, it's it's an extended family. It's like God restoring families. So my son and my daughter are deceased. You get this picture of Jesus saying, John, this is your mother. Mother, this is your son. So, develop relationships with kids, little kids, You have filled up, have helped me heal. And kids teach you more about yourself than anybody. They're like your best teachers because they'd get you so frustrated, you know. You don't do what you say, and walking in love with a child is more precious than, you can't fake that. I would say that, one, we're not our own. The second thing is that God has knit us all together in his love. And, and live. Isn't that what Christ is like trying to tell us? I'm alive. Live. I'm not dead and neither are you. We died, we rose, we're alive. Uh, I think we're living that out, uh, Cody and Sophie and kids, and I were living.
1: Yeah. Context really matters, and if you knew um, Cody's story, Cody grew up in the foster system here in Alaska for a good portion of his life, and he was taken in by a family, and Cody has this experience of being surrounded, being protected, having walls of safety and security built up, networks of relationships built around him, and so when Cody encounters Connie, he's like, This woman needs family, and so they invite her in. She's actually, she lives with them up in Talkeet because once you're family, you can't just abandon someone, I mean, you know, right? It's really a picture of what the church is designed to do, what the church is designed to be. And speaking of context, because context is king when it comes to the scriptures, we're going to be jumping for the next four weeks into a book called Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, if you don't know, um, does not come directly after Joshua, which is the book we've been in. We're making our way straight through the scriptures. But for this series specifically, we felt like Nehemiah's story paints a beautiful picture of what it looks like to build those circles of support. And network around people. And so we're going to jump to Nehemiah, but I want to give you just a brief history lesson, if I could, um, so that you know how we got from Joshua, where Israel has just now entered the promised land. They haven't even really established themselves. They're just now coming into the land. How we get from there all the way to where we're going to find ourselves in the story in Nehemiah. Basically, Israel takes possession of the land. They become a nation. They eventually want their own king. And so they have a king established named Saul. And Saul's not all that great of a king, but he's sure good looking. And then they get David and then they get Solomon. And somewhere down the line, the nation of Israel actually becomes um, entangled in its own civil war and it splits. And you have the nation of Israel that becomes its own nation and the nation of Judah that is the split. In Judah, the capital city is Jerusalem, the city you've probably heard of before, and Jerusalem is the capital city of Judah. Now Israel in the north, the kingdom of Israel, and Samaria, the capital city there, have already been conquered. And the prophets were warning them for years that this time was coming, and now the nations around them are gunning for Judah, and specifically the city of Jerusalem. And so a guy named Sennacherib in 690 BC attacks the city of Jerusalem. He's conquered pretty much the rest of the surrounding area, but he puts the city of Jerusalem under siege. And it's a long siege, but it's a failed siege. And so I want to give you a couple of things here. What you see on your screen um, is known as Sennacherib's Prism. And what it really is, is it's an account of his exploits and battles. And included on this, a non-biblical account from a pagan king, um, it's actually the account of his attack on Jerusalem. he talks about how he laid everything to waste, but they took siege of the city. But ultimately what it reveals is exactly what the Bible reveals, that the siege failed. It actually happened, when it happened, all of those things. I I just say this is sort of what we call sidebar apologetics. This is for free. You don't have to pay extra for this in your tithing. I'm just going (laughs) to give it away to you today. Some of you are like, wait, we have to pay extra in our tithing? joke, forget it. it, it but, but in Sennacherib's prison, and this is what really makes the scriptures unique, is the more that they dig, literally, dig in the earth and uncover archaeological sites, the more evidence they find that supports the claims of the scriptures. It happens over and over and over again, which is very different than a lot of other religious accounts. Uh, the Book of Mormon, for example, and I, I mean this, you won't find a single archaeological evidence for the claims of the Book of Mormon. For the scriptures, it is rife. Everywhere you look, you find more and more evidence. And this is one of those examples outside of the biblical text that tells us that the events written in the scriptures are actually accounted for in other places as well. But he lays siege. He doesn't conquer the city. And somewhere um, around 680 to 630 B.C., there are two prophets who begin to write to the nation of Judah and specifically to the city of Jerusalem. Their names are Isaiah and Jeremiah. And they're warning them of an impending judgment from the Lord if they will not bring their lives into obedience to his word and his commands. So here's what Jeremiah says. And listen to how specific Jeremiah's prophecy is. Jeremiah 25, 8 through 12 And now the Lord of heaven's armies says, Because you have not listened to me, I will gather together all the armies of the north under King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, whom I have appointed as my deputy. I will bring them all against this land and its people against the surrounding nations. Verse 11. This entire land will become a desolate wasteland. Israel and her neighboring lands will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Years. Then, after the 70 years of captivity are over, I will punish the king of Babylon and his people for their sins, says the Lord. I will make the country of, Bab- of the Babylonians a wasteland forever. And just so we know, we don't have time to dig into all of it right now. We'll get to it when we get back to books like Daniel and others. But that is exactly what happens. In fact, in 597 to 586, Babylon captures. Judah and ultimately captures Jerusalem and completely destroys the temple in Jerusalem. The temple that Solomon oversaw, this beautiful, ornate structure, Babylon destroys that temple and the people are taken into captivity in Babylon. Now, they actually prosper and thrive in Babylon, but fast forward to 538 BC, somewhere around 48 years later, and a king named Cyrus, who has actually conquered the Babylonians, has this real soft spot in his heart for people from other countries that have been taken into captivity, and he's allowing them to return and rebuild their temples and their places of worship. In fact, on um, what's known as Cyrus 's cylinder is an account. Of those events, we actually have an account of what Cyrus's tendencies were, what his heart was towards the people that had been captured by the Babylonians and his exploits to allow them return to their countries and reestablish their systems of worship. And so he does this with Jerusalem. And he sends Zerubbabel back to reconstruct the temple. Now, the construction of the temple takes a long time for a whole bunch of varied reasons, but roughly um, 80 years Later, The temple has been rebuilt, and King Artaxerxes realizes that culturally they are in disarray. And so there's a guy named Ezra who's a scribe. He knows the law of God. He knows the culture and the ways of the Jewish people. And he sends Ezra back to Jerusalem to establish civil order. And Ezra's like all kinds of fired up. I mean, Ezra gets back, and he is like yanking people's beards out. I mean, he is holding the people accountable. He's like, what are you doing? Why are you living this way? We need to get back to living the way God has uniquely called us to live. As he's working on this, if you were to fast forward 13 years, there's a guy named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah will have a chance encounter with a group of people who have just returned from Jerusalem and Judah. Listen to it in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In late autumn, right around moose season, (laughs) because it's coming. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hanani, and I, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. And they said to me, things are not going well for those who returned to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. The temple's been rebuilt. It's there. The place of worship exists. And, and Ezra's there trying to implement civil law again, bring back the law of God. But the reality is because the walls have been destroyed, because there's no safety and security in the city, our enemies are free to come and go as they please. And things are not going well. The people are actually Living in disgrace back in the land. You ever asked a question, and as soon as you ask it, you wish you hadn't? Pastors do this all the time. But we sort of do it in all kinds of different ways. You ask someone, hey, how are you doing today? And then they really tell you how they're doing today, and you're like, oh, look at the time. Right? I, I, maybe like you're at the grocery store, guys will understand this if you're, if you're married. Um, you're at the grocery store um, or if you called your mom from the grocery store, you think you got everything you're supposed to get, you're in the checkout line, but you think to yourself, I'm just gonna call and ask real quick. It's a bad idea, just so you know, but you do it, you make the phone call, you're in like, you're almost to the front with the world's slowest training checker there and you say, hey, I just thought I'd check and make sure there wasn't anything else you needed. And then you get the other list, you get a second cart, you go fill it up, and you have to get back in line. Have you ever asked a question, you're like, I wish I hadn't have asked that question. Or or how many of you are like um, binge watchers of the news every now and then, like once every three years you turn it on, like what's going on in the world? Anybody else? It's, It's a terrible idea. News in general seems to be a terrible idea. But every now and then I'll turn it on, I'll be like, what have I missed? And I discover that I've missed all kinds of terrible things that are going on. In the world, those elections or that war, and all of a sudden I find myself inundated with all of this information, all of these crises, all of these conflicts, all of these problems that I didn't know about just a few moments ago. And I find myself thinking, I wish I had never turned that on. Because the question that we're left with when we encounter these sorts of things is, so what am I supposed to do with what I just discovered? Does anybody else feel that? You can either become numb to it, I'm not supposed to do anything about it, it's just information, or you could find yourself routinely wrestling with what responsibility do I have with the information that I just acquired? And that can create a real challenge for us. Nehemiah is in this position. He just asked a question, how are things going back in Jerusalem? And I would guess that he would hope that the answer would be so good. Like, you can't believe how good they're going. Like, the temple has been rebuilt. How much better could it get than that? And he get a good report, nothing to do, nothing to see here, but no, things are not going well. And now Nehemiah is in this position where he's got information, and the question is, what is he supposed to do about it? So before I jump into a couple of ways that you can know how you should respond, let me say what I'm not saying. Because i found over the years, sometimes it's really important to say what you are not saying. So let me tell you what I'm not saying in the next few moments, that sometimes we discover things that are imminent crises. You discover that someone is being physically abused in their home or sexually abused in their home or you discover that someone is in a life-or-death situation in this moment and in those moments you should not say, let me take some time and pray and fast about what should be done about this. I'll get right back to you, right? Sometimes you are just supposed to act right now. The right thing is to do something right now. Uh, I've told you this before. I'll just give you an example. I've had a few moments in my life where I've come upon these crisis situations. One time we were driving back from Lake Michigan on our way back to Grand Rapids. And as we were driving down the highway on our way back um, in my Jeep Grand Cherokee, Kitchery, myself, and our son, Caleb, um, I saw a car up ahead pulled over onto the shoulder and there was a lady out of the car and there was another gentleman out of the car also. And you could tell there was a conflict going on and she was walking away from him. And as we got closer, I saw him grab her hair yank her to the ground, begin kicking her, and it was like on like Donkey Kong. Like, and as we go by, I think to myself, I need to go home and pray about what I should do. If I could spend a couple of days just fasting and praying, then I'd know if I should come back and do something. No. Like in that moment, the obvious response is to do something. So you can ask my wife. She's sitting right back there. It's just me. Sorry. Uh, but I slam on the brakes on the highway. <laughs> And then I throw it in reverse, backwards down the highway, and wheel around because right now is the only moment I have to act. I've seen something. There are those moments when doing something is the right thing, right? But more often than not, what we're dealing with are situations where we have time and we need to discern how should I uniquely respond in this situation. That's the situation Nehemiah finds himself in. James chapter 2, verse 15 through 17 sort of describes these imminent situations. Suppose you see a brother or a sister who does not have, and I love how they include this word, daily food or clothing. And you say, have a good day, stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself, unless it produces good deeds, is dead and useless. Sometimes the right thing to do is take action right now. But here's what I am saying. How do I discern what I should be involved with? The first thing is this. um, Knowing my priorities helps me set my boundaries. Knowing my priorities helps me set my boundaries. Because the truth is, often you and I, when we say yes to something, you are by default saying no to something else. We all have limited time, limited resources. The reality is that often the things I say yes to mean by default I'm saying no to something else. And here's the question. That thing that I'm saying no to, is that actually a priority? There are lots of things that I'm praying about. I'm trying to discern what the right thing to do in this moment is, and there are other things I don't even need to pray about. Like a lot of years ago, I said yes to this woman named Kitchri as my wife, and I made a commitment in that moment that she is my priority. And so when it comes to a situation where I would do harm to her by saying yes to this thing, it's a no-brainer for me because I already established a priority here. When we had our son Caleb, he became a priority in our lives. When we adopted our three girls, they became priorities in our lives. There are lots of things that I'm trying to discern and figure out, and there are other things I already know in this moment because they are priorities in my life that I cannot sacrifice those things for this thing. So here's the question I would encourage you to ask. What have I already said yes to, and will this new opportunity Keep me from fulfilling my current responsibilities. You're like me. We're like Nehemiah. We all have limited time, limited resources. And the reality is if I will establish my priorities, it will help me sort through what I can and should say yes and no to. But just remember, every new thing you say yes to, whether it's a hunting trip or a missions opportunity, every new thing you say yes to, means you are by default saying no to something else, filling that space, establishing your priorities. The second thing is this, not only knowing my priorities help me set my boundaries, but my motivation for taking action matters more than you can imagine. Often I don't think we stop at all to evaluate our motivation for doing good things, because it's a good thing. And the reality is that people may often be blessed by the good thing that I do, but my soul might be corrupted because of my motivation for doing it. This is a huge wrestling match often for pastors because we can develop the savior complex. You want everyone to like you. You want them to think you're for them. You want them to think you're just like Jesus, right? And, and so everything they ask you to do, you must say yes to it or they will not think that you love them and you will no longer be a good pastor in their eyes, Right? I think all of us wrestle with this to some degree. In fact, I would say at any given moment, this Sunday, for example, this Sunday, as I'm thinking about what God wants me to say, what today's supposed to look like, I am wrestling at the same time with my own desire to be approved of and accepted by you. But that cannot be my ultimate goal when I get up on a Sunday morning. My goal has to be to hear from God and communicate to us what he is saying to us. Regardless of what you think about how I do it. I cannot harvest my value from your approval of me. This is really important. The motivation matters, not because somebody might still be blessed by my action, but I could corrupt my own soul over time, and as a pastor I could ultimately end up completely washing out and doing more damage than good over time. Motivations matter. I would just say it this way: We actually have to, be, um, before we take action, evaluate our motivation. Which brings me to Mother, May I? Anybody ever played that game before, Mother May I? Anyone? Really? Like two people? Okay, good. Um, that's, that's great. Uh, I have not been able to figure out why it's even a game. Like, it's weird. I actually looked it up this, this past week. Um, Basically what you do is you have someone who is mother, and there's also like father may I, and then I think there's an original version called captain may I? But anyways, mother may I, you're standing with your back, and all the other people who are playing are back there, and they say, mother may I take three steps forward. Uh, no, you may not, but you may take one small step forward. And they ask permission to do something. What I discovered this week is that the person who's playing the game isn't all these people back here, it's Mother. And mother is attempting to get all of these people without looking to her at the same time by answering their questions and giving instruction. But anyways, it's a stupid game. I've just concluded now that I don't even understand. It's pointless. But all that aside, the point of the game is you're asking permission rather than being given instruction. You're taking the initiative. May I? Could I? Could I have permission to... I don't know about you, but I've often thought it would be so nice if God would speak to me the way he seems to speak to, I don't know, everyone in the Bible. You know, I I mean, as you're reading through the scriptures, like, and he said, and he said, and then he said, and he spoke too, and like an angel visited. And like, it's like, it seems like all the time people are getting visited by God. And I thought, if God would just show up like that and tell me what to do, how many of you would be like, got it? doing it. Does anybody wish God would just show up and speak to you like he did Moses or he did Joshua? Yeah. My guess is we would probably respond just like them. We would argue with God and tell him why we're not qualified. We would ask him for three different evidences so that we would know for sure. Like God shows up and talks to these people and they do the same thing we do when we believe we hear from God. I don't know. You're going to need to prove to me, could you say it three more times in three different ways? I don't know if you know this, but I'm not actually qualified. I stutter, so I shouldn't be a public speaker, Moses, right? I mean, when you look at the scriptures and these individuals have these encounters with God, they actually respond the same way you and I tend to respond when we believe we've heard something from God. But all of that aside, I think as I look in the scriptures, there's a distinction that could be made between what I call observant and obedient. I tend to think if God showed up and told me to jump, I'd just say, how high? I tend to think I'm wired that way, that that I would be obedient, but obedient is different than observant. I gave the illustration a couple of weeks ago. You're at a restaurant, and you've got a waiter or a waitress, and and they're coming to the table, and they are asking you, "Um, what do you need? And you tell them what you need, and then they go get you a glass of water or whatever it is, and that would be obedient. But you've all probably had the experience at some point, it's probably not at very many local restaurants, where where the waiter or waitress is observant. They see it before you ever ask for it, and then it just shows up at your table, and you're like, oh! I am definitely doing more than 5% tip this time. <laughs> uh-huh. Some of you are like, no, never. It, it should be way more. Anyways, but but they are observant, like, like they're looking ahead. They're not waiting for you to ask them to do something. They're looking for something to do for you. That's a very different approach. Proactive versus reactive. What is it that I might uniquely be positioned? I might have the resources or the gifting. How could I meet this need before anyone even asks me to meet it? That is observant, and that's actually what Nehemiah is. But but not only that. If you were to look in the Scriptures, and this is just for fun. If you were to look in the Scriptures, uh, at how many times God spoke to people? If you were to take um, all of the Israelites who leave Egypt and are headed into the promised land, right a million plus people, and out of all of those people, God is speaking to one face-to-face as he speaks to a friend, Moses. You know how everyone else is hearing the voice of God? Through Moses. None of us want to hear the voice of God through someone else. Like, oh no, God needs to speak to me directly just like he did Moses. But the overwhelming majority of people in the scriptures actually hear from God through someone else or through his written commands and word, and they receive it. It is actually the unique situation, extremely unique situation, even in the scriptures, when God speaks directly to a person by writing on the wall or in an audible voice or those sorts of things. And yet for all of us, God, I'm not going to do anything until you speak to me that way. In fact, Moses ends up dying at 120 years old, like Pastor Dale's age. At 120, (laughs) Moses ends up dying. If you were to average out the number of times on the high end that we have in the scriptures that God spoke to Moses, Moses himself hears from God roughly every five to 15 years. Here's all I'm saying is that if you were to ask in the scriptures themselves, what is the primary way that people hear from God? They hear from Him through the voice of others in their life, and they hear from Him through His Word. Just saying. In fact, um, the phrase, the Lord said, appears more than 300 times in the Old Testament. And in the book of Nehemiah, it does not appear one time. Not once in the book of Nehemiah does it say the Lord said anything to him. You know what Nehemiah did? Nehemiah saw a need, and Nehemiah asked the Lord if he could go meet it. That's what I love about Nehemiah. His life is a lot more like mine. Uh, like I would love for God to just like show up right on this wall like he's done in the past, send a donkey to my house and have the donkey talk to me. Even a Sicilian miniature donkey. I don't even care what kind of donkey it is. Like Any donkey could show up and just have a conversation with me. Or an angel show up in my living room. Or like any number of ways, and yet the reality is God is looking for people who are observant, not just obedient. That we're looking around and saying, what is it that I might uniquely be positioned to do in his kingdom? God doesn't ask Nehemiah to do anything. Nehemiah asks if God would allow him to do something. I want to make four observations from Nehemiah's prayer. The first three are this. Nehemiah repents of disobedience. Nehemiah remembers God's promises. And the third one is Nehemiah requests favor from God. And we'll get to the fourth one in just a minute. Nehemiah 1, verses 4 through 11 When I heard this, when I heard that the walls were in ruins and the people were in disgrace, when I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess, we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. Remember that promise, God? Nehemiah is not reminding God of God's promises. I don't know if you know this. God has not forgotten what he promised. Nehemiah is actually reminding himself of God's promises. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. Oh, Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. Which brings me to the fourth thing that's in Nehemiah's prayer. Not only does he repent of disobedience and he remembers God's promises and requests God's favor, but he also recognizes that he might be uniquely positioned to be the answer to his own prayer. When's the last time you started praying for a situation, for someone, and in your prayer you're asking the question, Am I the answer? Could I be the one who God uniquely positioned to be the answer to this? And here's what I would say about Nehemiah. Although Nehemiah has not heard God speak to him, he does not assume that God is not sending him. He isn't waiting around. Listen, God, I'm the king's cupbearer. What does that position mean? I have access to the king in a way few people have access to the king. What if I took advantage of the moment I was in? I believe that my position, my prestige, my authority, my resources, what if I believe they were all gods and he had positioned me to potentially be the answer to my own prayer? How would I approach life if that was my assumption? He doesn't believe that just because he hasn't heard God speak to him, God is not sending him. His assumption is that God is sending him, which brings me to missio day. Missio Dei is a Latin term. It literally translates um, the mission of God, but, uh, but a more transliteration, a more accurate uh, uh, interpretation of it would be the sending of God. Missio Dei, the sending of God, because God's ascending God. He has been since the creation of the world in the Garden of Eden. He came to Adam and Eve to walk with them in the garden in the cool of the day. He sends Abraham out of his land to a foreign land. He sends Moses to the people. God is sending over and over and over in the scriptures all the way into the New Testament when God sent his own son into the world. Jesus, God in the flesh, coming into our world, sent by the Father. But even in the person of Jesus. I saw a post here recently sort of a quip addressing the abortion issue and it simply said, "Um, if God can kill his own son, why can't we kill ours? Oh snap. And I thought, that's absolute ignorance when it comes to what happened with the person of Jesus because Jesus could not have been more clear when he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. That's the difference is that God didn't send his son to his death. The son of God requested permission to be the solution to the sin problem in the world. He said, I see a problem. I'll go take care of the sin problem in the world. I'll be the sent one. And nobody takes his life from him. He lays it down of his own accord. It's exactly what Nehemiah is doing in this moment. As he's saying, I could be the answer to the problem in Jerusalem. That's a good word, Pastor. I know, I know, so good. Like, I was just about to amen, and then I was like, well, I don't know, it's kind of quiet in here, and aren't you Baptist? I'm like, no, I'm not, but whatever. All right, I'll just keep going then. Um, Then Jesus shows up, and listen to the mission he gives his disciples, the sent one coming to his disciples after his resurrection from the dead. They're scared. They're hiding in a room with the doors locked. John 20, verse 19, suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and in his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. Now here it is. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. This is like the locker room speech, right? It's halftime. You're down by some points. The coach comes in the locker room. He's like, listen, it's not about talent. It's about heart. You guys can do this. This is a football, right? And like, go get them, team. This is like the rah-rah, we can do this speech. Unless you pause for a moment and you think about what Jesus meant by the phrase, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. You know, like right after he shows them the holes in his hands and his side. his crucifixion. And in fact, Jesus has actually been really clear with his disciples. John 15, 20 and 21. Do you remember what I told you? A servant is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They will do all of this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me, or Mark 8, 34. If you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, say no to your selfish ways, take up your cross and follow me. That's what he means by I am sending you. As the Father has sent me into the world, so I am sending you. You know why I'm sending you? Because I have uniquely positioned you, resourced you, gifted you, to lay your life down in a way that will produce resurrection life for those around you, if you would but trust me. With your life. If you would lay it down, you would actually discover the only life that has ever really mattered. Nehemiah does not see his position, his gifting, or his resources as belonging to himself. He sees them as belonging to God. And when you see your gifting and your resources and your time and all of those things as belonging to God, then the question becomes what should I do with God's? stuff, with God's talent, with God's time, because each person in this room has been placed in a unique sphere of influence with unique giftings and unique opportunities and unique relationships that I simply don't have. You do, and I have ones that you don't. Actually, it doesn't matter if you're a school teacher or a construction worker or a barista, whatever it is, God has actually placed you in a position, and the question you and I should be asking is, what does God want to do with his stuff? I'll give you a really simple example. Um, years ago, I told you the story before about my first four-wheeler, my first ATV that I bought, uh, Polaris Ranger um, 800. I went down there to buy the stock model. I left with something similar to a Special Forces. <laughs> like, uh, they just talked me into all of it back then. Um, and, uh, but I had been frustrated for years. I lived in Alaska for a long time, never owned an ATV. Everybody I knew owned an ATV, which meant that anytime I wanted to go moose hunting or any of those things, I had to borrow one. I hate borrowing stuff because if you break it, you got to fix it. You can't just rally it. Like, I just hate borrowing people's stuff. I finally got my own four-wheeler. I was so happy about it. And the moment I had it in my possession, I heard the voice of the Lord. Hey, Jonathan is that yours or is it mine? I'm like, well, I owe a lot on it right now, so it's still yours, God. Um, <laughs> but if you want to pay it off, <laughs> is that yours or mine? And it set me on a course from that time, more than a decade ago, it set me on a course that each and everything God entrusted to me, I recognized it did not belong to me. Yeah. I can't do the same thing for everyone that I can do for someone, and so I had to pick a group of people, but I just have communicated to our pastoral staff, who for the most part, other than Paul Sliwa, are a really responsible group of people um, and would fill up that tank with warm water. Um, uh, i just communicated to our pastoral staff anything that I have. Camper, canoe, raft, four-wheeler, anything that I have, if you ever want to borrow it, it's yours to borrow because it doesn't belong to me, right? It's just, it's just a simple way of acknowledging that this isn't my stuff. I only have it for a season. It's been entrusted to me by God, and if I've got it, then I've got it for a reason beyond just me and mine. So many of you are like that. I experience that from you all the time. You're just incredibly generous, but what would it look like to apply that to our giftings? What would it look like to apply that to our time and to our energy, what would it look like to invite those who do not have safety and security and family and become their network, their circle of support? Just you stand with me? Not everyone can do the same thing, but everyone can do something, which brings me to delayed obedience. Maybe you've heard the saying before, um, Delayed obedience is just disobedience. It feels better to call it delayed obedience, like God told me to. It's only been five years since he told me that. But just call it what it is. We all wrestle with it. Delayed obedience is just disobedience. Now, I know it's none of our kids, but let's talk about some hypothetical kids. Maybe you've had this experience before in a hypothetical way where you said to um, unnamed kids, hey, right now, I want you to quit playing with what you're playing with. I want you to get up, and I want you to go set the table. And they respond with, I will in a minute. I just need to. I'm like, I twitch. Like, no, 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 no. Clearly, we have not communicated because I said, right now, I want you to quit doing what you're doing. I want you to get up, and I want you to go set the table. Yeah, but I will as soon as I finish. No, 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 no. You aren't delaying obeying. It's just disobedience. And we always have our, thank you, I heard that, amen. (laughs) You hear that, everybody? Delayed obedience is just disobedience. When God has been clear about what he expects from us, to delay obeying is just to disobey. Just call it what it is, then we can move on from there, right? I talk with people routinely. I know God told me to blank. I just haven't done it yet. I haven't forgiven that person i haven't let that thing go out of my hands i haven't made that donation i haven't invested in that relationship and at some point you just need to stop and acknowledge that you're doing damage to your own soul your own ability to hear god speak in your life by delaying obedience any longer nehemiah does not have this issue In fact, in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, it says, At the next opportunity, the next time I was in front of the king, I went for it. I, I love his description. He's in front of the king, and the king says, Why are you so deeply troubled? And it says, Then I was terrified, but he was afraid, but. And Nehemiah doesn't do what we do. Like the moment finally presents itself. The king says to Nehemiah, what do you want? Well, I mean, it's not a lot. It's just, if I could just ask for this little thing, if I could just go visit the city of Jerusalem, if I could just see what's going on there for myself. And Nehemiah's like, this is the moment. God's opened the door. I'm shooting for the moon because I want God to do supernaturally what I could not ever accomplish personally. So Nehemiah does. When the king asks, how can I help you? It says, with a prayer to the God of heaven. Like, he's throwing one up right now. With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, If it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. Oh, I also said to the king, If it please the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. Oh, and... Please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, you know, the one who's over your uh, lumber yard, instructing him to give me timber. I will need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, oh, and for my own house also. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. I should add, the king had also sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. Here's what I want you to know. Nehemiah's request is not limited by what he believes will be permitted. He says, if God is in this, I'm shooting for the moon. If God is in this, the walls need to be rebuilt. If God is in this, his his city needs to be secure and safe. And so he asks for all of it because if God is in it, if God's going to provide, well, he pays for what he orders. And maybe for us, we have been too limited in what we're asking God for. that He's inviting us into things and our request really should be that we start asking God to provide supernaturally what we could not ever provide personally on our own and watch him show up and show off over and over again. I'll tell you, it it happened this week. I can't tell you the whole story yet. Don't worry, the story's coming. But to the tune of roughly $100,000, the things we were looking to get done around here, and we're making a couple of phone calls, and all of a sudden, in a moment, the person who answers the phone says, I got it, I'll cover the whole expense. I had another, the next day, the next day I got a phone call and someone said, hey, I noticed um, that we don't have a bus and we don't have vans or anything for the youth to be able to get to and from events and women's ministry and all those kinds of things. Would it be okay if I bought those and I paid for and scheduled the routine maintenance for them? Thank you, Jesus. Like, I'm just telling you, I think we are far too small-minded when it comes to joining God in what he wants to do in the world. And Nehemiah is not sitting around waiting for God to tell him to do something. He's asking God if he could join him in doing something great for his name's sake in the world. And so, Jesus, my prayer is for each and every one of us in this room that we would acknowledge and recognize that you've entrusted us with things, resources. You've placed us in spheres of influence and relationships, and you have given us gifting and talent. And may we surrender those things to you. May we begin to look around us and ask you what we could join you in doing. And may we shoot for the moon when we join you in your work in the world. In Jesus' name.
0: Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play.